morning, everyone. If you would turn back in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, we're going to um, complete that chapter this morning in our series on 1 Corinthians. I find it amazing that as we um, read about Corinth, um, that Paul is determining to tell them um, so many things about what they need to know as a congregation, what they need to know as brethren. And it's honestly exactly like we are. And it has that irony about it. When we read from the New Testament, from the Old Testament, we read a lot about love. I remember when I was first married, I said to somebody, an older person, I said, you know, can I, what, where can I read? What can I learn about love? And he said, you know, read the Song of Solomon. And I read the Song of Solomon. I had no idea what it meant. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I was, I was looking at it and I was thinking to myself, that doesn't make any sense. You know, I, I read this and I read that and, and I don't, I don't get it. And I went back to him and I said, I don't get it. And he tells me, read it again. He goes, because you're not going to learn anything about love until you learn from the wisest man that ever walked the earth except for Jesus Christ Himself. And I read it again and again and again. And the things that I finally thought of and read while I was reading it were just amazing. I mean, we know from the very beginning there how to love, what love truly is. But... Oddly enough, we seem to struggle with it. Almost in every case, almost on every occasion. We do this in our families. We struggle with love. Why is that? We do it with our brethren in Christ. In our marriages sometimes we struggle. Why? We know everything about love. But still the challenge strangely continues. For Corinth... The practice of love was more theory than application, just as it is often with us. We know what love is, we know how it's described, we can learn about it in the New Testament extensively, but still, it being necessary to us, it being something that is a part of our character, a permanent part of our character, It being something that we believe is a practical way to handle our lives. Oh, that is very different. It's very far from us in many cases. Even though we read about it over and over again. And so Paul, in our passage that we're going to read, is now going to detail uh, the permanence of love. You know, if I told you what things are certain in life, What would you say? There you go. That's what you would say. Death and taxes. Right? Because we hear that from the time we're young. What things are are always going to be that death and taxes? That's not the answer. The answer is what Paul writes. Paul writes, it's going to be love. That's supposed to be the permanent thing. And I think our idea that death and taxes or something else is the the only real permanent thing in life has almost dulled our senses to the fact that love is supposed to be the most permanent. Love is supposed to be the answer to that question. 
Because Paul says it is best, it is highest. And so let's go ahead and read that. In 1 Corinthians 13, 8-13, he says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. You know, Paul returns again to these really incredible, miraculous gifts that the Corinthians are involved in that they can do. And and he's returning their attention to that and he's telling them they're impermanent, they're imperfect, they are not the end all. Love is the end all of everything. And the one exception is that highest gift. That's the idea. Love is the exception to all. Love is the most important. It's not that all those other things are not wondrous. And they do not have a place. And they do not have a purpose. They do. But they all pale in comparison to love. Paul even says in our text that spiritual gifts have to end. In love, in order for love to have its its truly fullest effect, he wasn't surprised that these were dividing them. He wasn't surprised of the things that were dividing them as a congregation. He simply appealed to them to let them know that that understanding was there, but that's something they're going to have to get over because something is going to replace that, all of that, that's going to be infinitely greater. So that's why Corinth should not uh, elevate certain gifts above others, which they were doing. Uh, but they were supposed to, as we read before, exercise these miraculous spiritual gifts for the common good. That was their purpose. What could be more loving than the common good? Because that's all that will remain after the gifts pass. After the gifts cease, as he says. That's the fuel for the common good is love. And so it it supersedes all others. And so now he's going to tell us, and he's going to tell them, and, and again, us across time, about this perfect love. And he even says that when the perfect comes, right? And we look at that and we are sometimes left with, with what that means. But we just have to remember, just as the old must give way to the young, just as the, the lesser must give way to the greater, John, to Christ, these gifts will give way to perfection. True perfection, which is love. And so, when we look at the perfect here, modern religion tries to teach us that's about Jesus. You know, He's the perfect. He's going to come. So, they are left in this religious nightmare almost, 
of thinking that not all knowledge can be had, not all love can be practiced until Jesus comes again. And that's really the foundation for many world religions, honestly. They believe that that this is talking about Jesus coming again, and so when that perfect gets here, we will know. So they're just stuck until then. And that's not what Paul is, is writing at all. That's not the perfect. You know, we can't then know fully when Jesus comes again. That doesn't make any sense. We have to know fully before He gets here. Because then we have no hope. If He comes and gives us full knowledge, full revelation, and then we're like, oh, I didn't get that. How can He then be the true, perfect judge of the world? He can't. But He will be. Because He gives all knowledge first. Remember, like we were talking about this morning, God's not mean, He's not wrathful, He's just. He's loving. He's sinless and free, boundless. And He calls out to us in these ways and we have to understand that. And so Paul is telling us about this perfect love. So he's not talking about Judgment Day. But he is talking about a time. An era where faith, hope, and love (coughs) abide. Brethren and friends, that's our time. That's the time that we live in. We are living in an era where faith, hope, and love should abide. That's the idea. We are here and that's what makes this time perfect, isn't it? And so Paul says, here's what makes it so perfect. What makes it so perfect is that you now have complete knowledge. Full revelation of God's will. You have a mature understanding. Like we were talking about before. No one is as well off as we are in understanding how best to practice love. Nobody's as good off as we are. We don't all practice miraculous spiritual gifts because we don't have them anymore. So we don't have that to divide us. We have the full will of God revealed in the Bible and the Scriptures to read, so we don't have to be divided about that. We have complete knowledge. We should be able to love easier and more more full than any other generation, any other people that have ever lived upon the earth. Yet it escapes us. Doesn't it? It often escapes us. And that's the difficult thing. See, Paul in the Corinthians, he says this in this passage. They lived in the time of partial revelation. Things were being unfolded. Things were being delivered. Things were being written. The apostles were working. Second Peter 1 and 21, that's what he says. They're, they're moved along by the Holy Spirit. They're writing the things as the Holy Spirit gives them utterance. And Paul says, yes, that's our time. But that time is coming to an end. We're, we're soon to come to full revelation. So understand that love is going to be possible. And faith and hope, it's going to be more possible than it was ever possible before. I mean, that's just an incredibly energetic and energizing kind of wonderful thing, isn't it? But maybe not. Although we live in the era of the full disclosure of the mind of God, again, it still seems to get away from us. What is God thinking? 
Have you ever thought that? What is God thinking? And you might have heard people say that. You know, look at the way the world is. What is God thinking? That's an odd question. Because I can let you know exactly what God is thinking. Really? How? Well, you read the Bible. Because the world has nothing to do with it. The way the world is, everything that's going on, what happens to us, what doesn't happen to us, is not the point. The point is what God is thinking, and we have full disclosure about that now. These miraculous spiritual gifts, they accomplished what they were supposed to. So that you and I could have what we possess today. And in here, it's as far away as your arm. You can grab a Bible pretty much anywhere in this building. Hopefully, you can grab a Bible anywhere in your house. (laughs) Hopefully, you'll even have one in your car. Just don't read it while you're driving. But you should have one in your car with you. You know, there, there would be one just everywhere so that we could grab it at any point we need it. And that's what Hebrews 2 says. Hebrews 2, especially verses 2 through 4, teaches us that. And let's be reminded of that real quick. If you go with me to Hebrews, the second chapter... Just a, a, a beautiful, small little passage here. In Hebrews 2 and verses 2 through 4. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard, since God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. How do we miss it? (laughs) That's what the Hebrew writer is saying. How are we missing this idea? Faith, love, hope. How are we missing that? And how dare we let it escape from our grasp, the Bible, the Scriptures, the Word of God, the Holy Writ. It is there for us to look at. It is there for us to read. It's there for us to understand, to love, to embrace. And that's that's just the question about it. When are we going to do that? When do we do that? You know, Paul was writing to the Corinthians. They did not. And so he might write similarly to us. I don't know. But the fact of the matter is is that they needed to know and we need to know this. If you look in James, the first chapter with me, look at what James writes about this. He gives a very beautiful illustration of this very fact that we just read. In James 1, 19-27, James writes, Know this, my beloved brothers, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness (coughs) the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. 
But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. What are those two things there? Keep yourself unstained from the world. Stay away from sin. It hasn't any power over you. You have the power over it. This is now your choice. You are not in the grip of of irresistible temptation. Get it away from you. Be unstained by the world. To visit orphans and widows. What does that mean? Be compassionate. Have a a deep compassion. This isn't a checklist for what we should do in order to be saved. And, you know, if I visit an orphan and a widow, and then if I keep myself in a state of I'm going to heaven. You know, no, that's not what he's talking about here. He's illustrating some very deeper truths. You have to have a lot of compassion. It takes a lot of compassion to visit an orphan or a widow. It takes even more compassion to take them into into your heart, into your home. And, and help them if they, if they need it. You know, that takes a lot of compassion. A lot of self-sacrifice. And then keep yourself unstained from the world. The world is geared to stain you. You are literally walking around, well, figuratively anyway, figuratively walking around in a world that's just raining sin. But, but he says, doesn't he? You can keep yourself unstained from the world. What an incredible promise. See, 2 Timothy 3, 14-17 says, the Bible is all we need. I don't need further revelation. Oh, you say you speak to God? No, you don't. You are a liar. You are a charlatan. Because God speaks to us through His Son. And His Son speaks to us through the Word. And we can read it. And if you say you could speak to God, but He says anything differently than in here, you're a liar. How safe we are. How blessed we are. Nobody can fool us. Remember this morning? The love that I give you, Jesus says, no one can take it from you. No one can take it from you. You've got it. Somebody says something to you and you can go, wait just a second. I don't believe that says that. You find out it doesn't, you have a false teacher right there. Perfect. What freedom, what liberty, what security. And we live in a time that balks at that. But the fact of the matter is, it's all our resource so that we can have compassion and so that we can love the way that Paul describes it to the Corinthians. How we let it fail is incredible. It's just because we won't embrace it. That's what the problem is, isn't it? We just fail to embrace it. Have you ever lost anything precious to you? It could be a thing. It could be a person. If you really, truly loved that person or that thing. And you know what I mean, mementos. I have, a, I have some of the craziest things. I have the a, a Bible that my dad wrote in the back page of it. If I ever lost it, I would be crushed. 
It sits literally right by my desk all the time so I don't lose it. If I ever have to pack, if I ever have to travel, it's going to go where I know it's supposed to go and I can find it again. (laughs) Isn't that weird? I have this little pocket knife that he used to carry in his pocket. Probably worth $1.99 or something. Priceless. If I ever lost it, I would be crushed. Isn't that weird? Why do I feel that for those things? Because he's not here anymore. I lost what was precious to me. And so as a result, I cling even more closely to what remains as the, as the memory or the memorial of that preciousness. Isn't that, we see that's odd? No, 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 that's, that's who we are. This is the way that we are. So, Paul is telling us, then embrace what remains. Those spiritual miraculous gifts, they're not going to remain. They're going to go away. They are precious. They have a purpose. But embrace what remains because it is infinitely much more precious to you. And what remains now, after those are gone, are three incredible things. Faith, hope, and love. Three incredible things that are left over. Out of all the things that you can lose in life, out of all the things that that you can, can lament or mourn over, God has shown us through the Scriptures, and Paul is speaking to the Corinthians, out of all the things you may... Could you imagine what it would have been for those guys or people uh, in general who could speak in tongues? But after they died, nobody was around for speaking tongues anymore. Could you imagine those people who could prophesy? And then after they died, they just couldn't do that anymore. Nobody else had that power anymore. Could you imagine how incredibly big of a letdown that would have been to Corinth because they based everything on them? They elevated them to the point that they were rock star status among them. And here's what he says to them. He says, those are all going to go away. So cling to what remains because what remains is infinitely more precious than those. Faith, hope, love. We will always have those. And I don't know about you, but that is superiorly comforting to me. Because we have a very rigorous life, don't we? Full of, you may have a little planner that you have to write in hours. I gotta go here, and I gotta be there, and then I gotta go to work here, and then I gotta come to work there, and then I gotta go do this at this time, and then I gotta go do that. Oh, there's not enough hours in the week. There's not enough time for me to get any of that done. And we have all of this in our lives just rolling around and burdening us and everything. And we look into the scriptures, and he says, all that, even if it all goes away, you still have faith. You still have hope, and you still have love. That's the question. Do we embrace that? (coughs) That's the key to love, isn't it? Embrace what remains. That's the key to love. All we have to do is remember to embrace it. Cling to it. Especially love. If you can't cling to faith and hope, the greatest still remains. Isn't that exactly what Paul said? These, these things, cling to them, especially that love. Because love will take care of everything else. 
Love will bring you back to faith. Love will bring you back to hope. If you fail in any of those, in any way, any sin, any darkness, any challenge in your life, whatever it is, remember the love of God, the love that we are supposed to have between us. Again, we have infinitely fewer reasons to stray from it. So why do we fail to build it into our character? We should be really good at love. If we aren't really good at love, why not? Because we have the greatest reason to be. But instead, we often act like terrible people. We often act ugly, mean, nasty, whatever it is. Notice what James said, visit the widows and the orphans in their affliction. You know, would you go up to an orphan and look at him and go, you know, you need to suck it up until you're old enough to get a job and then you need to work and make your own way. Urchin. That's just the way it's got to be. <sighs> and you puff your chest up and you walk away. Would you go up to a widow and go, well, you know, you're old. This is the way it goes. You know, better get used to it, Buttercup, because it doesn't get any easier here. You're just going to get worse and worse and worse till you kick it off. Can you imagine? Can you imagine someone spewing that kind of hate out of their mouth? Or even acting like that was true? You say, no, no, I can't, I can't think about that. I, that, that no, we would never be guilty of such things. And yet, yes, we are. We're guilty of things like that. Even though we have the most reason to be loving, we often can be ugly, mean, and nasty. Even though we shouldn't have any of it. If you look with me in John, in John in 16 and 2, when I read this the other week, uh, whenever Jared was doing this in class, um, it slapped me right in the face. Because of reading about love from Paul. I didn't say anything in class because I don't think I could have. Because it was really harsh to read. First time, have you ever had one of those moments? I've read that a thousand times, <laughs> but this is the first time I've ever read it. Okay, so I look at that, and in 16, chapter 16 and 2, it says, They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. Have you ever been acted nasty towards by a brother or sister in Christ because they thought they were doing service to God? Have you yourself ever acted nasty and mean to one of your brothers or sisters in Christ, or to anybody, just because you thought you deluded yourself in your head that you were doing service to God. Consider that. That's why it slapped me in the face. The person that acts contrary to love that Paul describes there in 1 Corinthians is no better than those that would have put the apostles to death or kicked them out of the synagogue. the same person. 
the same character. It's the same personality. It's the same mindset. It's the same heart. Embrace what remains. See, we can embrace what remains because we don't have dimness of knowledge. That's what Paul says there, isn't it? Right now we look in a, in a glass darkly. That's not what James said, is it? <laughs> James said we can see who we are. Isn't that what we read there? Go back to James 1 and 23 and 24. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. It is so clear that you can see every little pore, every little pimple, every little wrinkle, every little hair. It is perfectly clear. That's what James is describing. He's describing the opposite of what Paul is describing. Paul says we look into a mirror now dimly. We we don't see everything. But then we will know even as we are known. Then we will be face to face with God. Incredible, isn't it? But we don't have that excuse. We have no vague truth. We have no dim mirror into which to look to. All we have is ourselves and the obstacles in our minds and in our hearts, which can be darkened by sin, by meanness, by ugliness. That's what we have. And so we have to ask ourselves that question each and every hour, each and every day. Are we embracing, clinging to faith, clinging to hope, clinging to love? Especially love. When we open the Bible, are we zealous to see God face to face, right? Because that's we're looking right into His face. <laughs> it's as if He were right here with us speaking to us. Could you imagine what your attitude would be, what your disposition would be, if God Himself decided to descend on this building and talk to you? I don't think you'd be like, you know, I, I don't have time for this. Uh, you know, no. No, you wouldn't be that way. We'd be like the ancients. We'd probably be flat on our face on the ground going, I don't even want to look up. I'm not worthy even to look at the dirt under your feet. If we love, that's going to be our disposition all the time. Boy, that's difficult, isn't it? Nobody's saying it's easy. It's just what's written there. <laughs> it's what's written there and it's very difficult. But it's, it's necessary. It's practical. These are the things that we should be doing. It's supposed to be a part of our character. Do you and I seek diligently to find God's face? Because it was very clear, right? It was very clear what we read in the Scriptures. Are you a bridler of your speech? That's the reason bridle is used there. We've talked about this before when we studied from James. When James says meek, he doesn't mean wimpy. He means bridled. And the only reason you bridle a horse is because that thing will stomp you to death if you don't have the bridle on it. Or it'll run off on you and you won't be able to catch it. Or you will be on it and you will fly off. 
The reason they put a bridle in a horse's mouth is to create meekness. Power under control. That's what meekness means. And that's what he's talking about here. Your speech, my speech, is powerful. Do we bridle it so that it is at its most powerful? Because if it is infused with faith, hope, and love, it will be perfect. If it's not, then we lack love and we fail in that love. Do we give off compassion? Are we compassionate people? I remember I, uh, I had a... I don't know if any of you ever had a migraine. <laughs> I had a migraine headache once. You can't see yourself anyway at all. It's hard to walk, hard to... You know, I had to stay in a dark room and cover myself up. And I missed services one Sunday. I was a preacher at the time. I was just starting as a preacher. And this was a great experience for me because I went back on Wednesday night and one of the uh, older brethren said, uh, Hey, why weren't you here? I said, I, I had a migraine. I couldn't even walk. Could hardly see it. I'm so sorry I couldn't be. And he looks at me and he goes, What are you talking about? Do you know that I had to go to the doctor and have needles put in my eyes? And I still made it to the services? And I thought to myself, Thank you for that. Yeah. That was, that was very uplifting. You know, thanks. You know, I said nothing to him because I was raised better than that. I wanted to say lots of things to him. But I looked at him and I said, I'll try harder next time. All right then. You think he walked away thinking he had done service to God? Straighten out that young preacher boy and get him straight. But what did he do? He was a great teacher for me, let me tell you. Taught me exactly what never to do. Although... I do sometimes, don't I? Don't you? We do that. We fail. We act in those ways. We think that that's the way to be. Unstained from the world. How do we handle that? (laughs) The world is reigning with sin. Do we always carry our umbrella? Are we not going to put up with that? Are we going to fight against that and defy it? Brethren and friends, we have every access to love's necessity in our lives. We have every access to love's character for us to apply to ourselves in every relationship we have. And we have love's practicality to be practiced and executed faithfully in every situation in our lives. The question is, are we doing it? And that should be our hope, our faith, and our love that we all seek to strive to fulfill that. You start that by being baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins. That is the beginning of your time in the Lord, your time face to face with Him. And you grow from that point forward. And when we can look at each other and we can see that soul. Why did he use widows and orphans? <laughs> Who could look at a widow or an orphan and have anything in their heart but compassion and love? Only the most evil of people. And they don't count. And so that's why he uses the examples. Every time we see a brother or sister in Christ or someone who needs the Gospel, 
We should be seeing a widow or an orphan. There's the point. How could we react any different? If you are not baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins, how could you act any differently than to come to Him? To be baptized into the Lord and to walk in newness of life. Your sins remitted by the blood of Christ. And if you are a Christian, and you look at what Paul says about faith and hope and love, and you look at all of that and you say, man, that that was a problem for them I can see, and I can see where it's a problem for me. It doesn't matter if you can see it's a problem for somebody else. It only matters if you can see it's a problem for me, for you, as an individual. Because do you think you're going to be able to change the world? No. It's raining sin out there. What you and I are going to be able to do is do what we need to do. To live with faith, hope, and love as part of our nature. Because we believe in God. If there's anyone here today that has any need, whatever it is, please let us know. We will do our best. Whether to be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins or just to get the support of the brethren to continue in the struggle for faith, hope, and love that all of us are supposed to be involved in. Whatever your need, please let it be known while we stand together and while we sing.